Well, then, with God's help, let's uh, turn to the passage that uh, we began looking at last time, the Song of Solomon and chapter 5. As I mentioned, the, the song itself consists of a series of several songs. And uh, we're looking at the one that begins in verse 2 of the chapter and continues all the way through the chapter. And uh, we read at verse 2 where you'll remember the church <coughs> is speaking. She is being stirred by the knock and the voice of her beloved. I sleep, but my heart is awake. It is the voice of my beloved. He knocks, saying, Open for me, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one. For my head is covered with dew, my locks with the drops of the night. I have taken off my robe, how can I put it on again? I have washed my feet, how can I defile them? My beloved put his hand by the latch of the door, and my heart yearned for him. I arose to open for my beloved, and my hands dripped with myrrh, my fingers with liquid myrrh on the handles of the lock. I opened for my beloved, but my beloved had turned away and was gone. My heart went out to him when he spoke. I sought him, but I could not find him. I called him, but he gave me no answer. The watchmen who went about the city found me. They struck me. They wounded me. The keepers of the walls took my veil away from me. I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, if you find my beloved, that you tell him, I am lovesick. And particularly the words of verse 5, where the church rises to open for her beloved, her hands drip with mill, her fingers with liquid mill on the handles of the lock. Now, as we saw last time, there's a a very close relationship between the experience of the church here in the song and the experience of the church in the Garden of Gethsemane. In both cases, the church is asleep and she is being stirred by the sound of her beloved's voice. And we particularly saw that in this chapter here. The Beloved comes, he speaks, saying, Open for me, my sister, my love, my dove, and my perfect one. These are all terms of endearment which are designed to awaken herself to a sense of his deep love for her. And along with his voice, he knocks to convey his urgency that he wishes to come in and to enjoy close fellowship with her. 
What's more, he conveys to her how much he has endured for her, because his head is covered with dew and his locks with the drops of the night. But then we saw how the church fails to respond to that invitation. She says, I've taken my robe off, how can I put it on again? I've washed my feet, how can I defile them? And that, of course, is an example of the poor kind of excuses that the church gives, or that perhaps you've sometimes given, even when you're conscious that the Lord is calling you to the throne of grace, to read his word, to come to a prayer meeting, or anything spiritual at all. The excuses are there, sadly, and they are poor as well. It's impossible to read these without feeling the ingratitude of the one who is lying in the bed, not sensitive to the call of her beloved. But at the same time, we should notice that she is awakening. I sleep, she says, but my heart is awake, or indeed awakening. It is the voice of my beloved. In other words, it is the voice itself that is stirring her. It's the voice that's awakening her. And she finds herself in this state that the Gaelic expression for it is she is somewhere between sleep and being fully awoken. But you notice that she is awakening. And of course she is responding to two things. First of all, she's responding to his voice. And she makes that plain in verse 6. After she has opened the door, she says that her beloved had turned and had gone. But then she says, my heart went out to him when he spoke. So even though her speech was making excuses, I, I can't come because of this and I can't come because of that, at the same time she reflects and says that she is conscious that her heart had gone out towards him when he spoke. So it's like being caught in a kind of state of paralysis where you desire something but for some reason the, the strength isn't there to perform it. There is a, a desire to do good but it doesn't mature into the will. It doesn't mature into action. So she does respond albeit slowly to his voice. The second thing that she responds to is a special movement on his own part towards her. Because even though she makes her excuses, he appears to overcome them. Because he moves to put his hatch, his hand on the latch of the door. Now according to those who are familiar with Eastern customs, the, the latch and the lock of the door is quite a complex uh, mechanism. And uh, he puts his hand in to unlock the door. We're told at that point that her heart yearned for him. Her heart yearned for him. Verse 4. My beloved put his hand by the latch, and my heart yearned for him, and I arose to open. 
for my beloved. And again, it must be the sense of urgency that he has for her. And again, her consciousness of his deep love for her that finally moves and stirs her. Just as it is with ourselves too, because whenever we are overcome by sleep, by lukewarmness, or even spiritual coldness, what, what finally overcomes, and it's thanks to the Holy Spirit that it does overcome, what finally overcomes is a powerful sense of the love of Christ towards us. The love of Christ constrains me, the Apostle said. The love of Christ constrains me. And it's important in that verse to understand that when the Apostle speaks of the love of Christ, it's not his own love for Christ that constrains him. Uh, not that it would be wrong to say that, because our love for Christ does sometimes constrain us, and it is a great motive in itself. But nonetheless, what the Apostle means is that it is the love of Christ for himself that constrains him. His love for me. And uh, truly, I don't know of anything that breaks the heart of the Christian like that. An overwhelming sense of the undeserved love of the Lord for your own soul, even when you are awake, asleep, perhaps in a state of near death. So she has this sense of his urgency. Behold, I am standing at the door, and I knock, and I would indeed desire your company, but you must come and open the door. If you do, I will come in and sup with you, and you will sup with me. Or as God said to Israel, I will fill your mouth abundantly, do thou it open wide. You notice our part must be there, and it's important to notice that the Saviour doesn't ride roughshod uh, over her condition in that respect. He, he is going very far, but she needs to come out of that bed, and she needs to meet him, and she needs to invite him in. I'll fill thy mouth abundantly, do thou it open wide. If you do open it, I will feed you with the finest of the wheat and with honey that comes from the rock. But as well as showing his urgency by putting his hand on the latch, he also encourages her with his own fragrance. He encourages her with her own, his own fragrance. And that is the liquid myrrh that he puts on to the latch of the door. Now I'm conscious that perhaps um, it may be a more obvious reading or it may even be the way that you've thought of it to think of the mirror as her own mirror uh, that, that, that she is just preparing herself before she opens the door by putting mirror on herself which is of course an expensive perfume. But actually it's far better to understand this mirror as not hers, but his. Mirror is often associated with the Lord Jesus Christ in Scripture. And there are those who believe, and I think they may well be right, that it's a spice particularly associated with suffering. 
with pain. Of course, he received it on the cross. So again, this Mary speaks of his love for her and his sufferings for her as the one whose head is covered with the dew and his locks with the drops of the night. And he deposits that mirror on the latch of the door. Now, which would be able to take it, because according to the kind of construction the lock was, it is well able to take a pouch of mirror or something to that effect, or a pouring of liquid mirror upon it. Now, a fragrance like that would fill the whole room. Of course, when Mary poured out her alabaster box of perfume, spikenard, fragrant spikenard, that fragrance filled the whole room, just a bottle of perfume. And of course, we're aware of that. If you were to pour even a small bottle of very strong perfume in this room, it wouldn't be long before everyone was quite overwhelmed with the fragrance of it. Uh, but that was Mary's love for the Lord. But this is the beloved's love for the church. And she recognises the fragrance. And the fragrance quickens her movement towards her beloved. Now, I'm sure you're familiar with the fact that a strong fragrance is a powerful thing. And it's, it's, a, it's a strange thing to explain in a way, really, but it has a particular uh, power to awaken memories and experiences from the past. I remember reading a long time ago about a, a man who was uh, going through processions many years after his wife passed away and uh, came to a small bottle of perfume. And he opened the bottle of perfume and he was immediately overcome with a thousand recollections which simply came from the fragrance of her distinctive perfume. It brought everything that was beautiful in connection with his wife so powerfully before. Now, that's really what's being brought before us here too. The murders are a reminder to her of who's at the door. The voice, yes, but the mirror too. An encouragement to come and to experience again the closeness of a walk with Christ, which is what she had forgotten in the first place. Every song within the Song of Solomon has the same pattern. It begins with the beloved and the church estranged. And then it leads us to the reason for the estrangement. There's a process of seeking, finding, and the song closes with embrace and warmth and fellowship. So this perfume is a reminder to her of what she had lost, and that's the preciousness of the Lord Jesus' presence. And she stirs herself, and she quickens her steps as she goes towards the Saviour. That's how the Song of Solomon uh, began, really, in a sense. Uh, Draw me and we will run after you. She is obviously being drawn. Now, if I'm not mistaken, we see the same process in the Garden of Gethsemane too. You'll remember that the disciples were asleep. 
and that sleep, just like this one, was an outward symbol of an inward spiritual reality. They were not in their spirits where they ought to have been. When they should have been awake and praying with the Lord, who told them to watch with them, they fell asleep, and not once, but more often than that. And at last, the Lord leaves them and tells them that the betrayer is at hand. And of course, one of the reasons that he told them to pray was lest they would fall into temptation themselves. So when, when they are ready there with Christ at the time of his arrest, they're not spiritually ready for that conflict at all. Peter tries to sort it out with his sword, which is again a symbol of trying to respond to spiritual difficulties uh, with your own ingenuity, with your own mind, with your own power, and not by the Spirit of the Lord. The disciples forsook him, and they fled. So it's safe to say that though they were awake physically, they were sleepwalking spiritually. That's all they were doing. They had not been, and they still were not, in the right place. They were not armed by prayer to withstand the assault of the adversary. And of course, you see the final effect of that, especially in Peter, as he sits by the fireside. How different he would have been had he watched with the Lord, had he spent an hour in earnest prayer with the Lord, how different it would have been. But he didn't, and he didn't because of what he had become. And round the fireside, that weakness eventually comes out in oaths and curses and a threefold denial of the one who loved his own soul. And of course, all that time, Peter thinks he would never do such a thing. That goes back to what I said uh, last time at the prayer meeting, that it's possible to be very spiritually weak and to think yourself spiritually strong. And sad to say, Peter was like that. But Christ, in his mercy, calls him again. Well, he had called him in Gethsemane called him twice, roused him and stirred him. But can we now say that when Peter is in the courtyard that Christ actually puts his hand to the latch of the door of his heart? Can we not say that he puts Mir there and that he puts Mir there in a way that is fragrant? How does he do that? Well, as Luke tells us, by turning and looking on Peter. Now it's easy to see that as a, a look of rebuke, a look of disappointment, but there's no doubt that it's also uh, a look of love, a look of understanding, and a look of compassion. After all, he has sinned, and sinned grievously. And that look is full of fragrance. And although Peter goes out into the night, and of course his beloved has withdrawn himself, there's, there's no Christ obviously, or obvious to him when he goes out into the night and he weeps bitterly. 
At the same time, we could say concerning Peter that his fingers are full of murder, in the sense that the that the love of Christ is eventually what's going to prevail with him. The tears that he sheds that night are are not tears of uh, remorse. They're not the kind of tears that would lead to taking away your own life. They're tears of sorrow for what he has done to the one who is altogether lovely, the one who is fairer than any among the sons of men, and especially the one who has loved his own soul. And I've no doubt that the look uh, that the Lord gave him is what enabled him to be carried through that night, and what enabled him finally, when that process was finished, to rediscover his peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, there was mirth, sweetness, fragrance in the look that his Saviour gave him. It was hard for him to believe that he had hurt someone who was so altogether lovely as the Lord Jesus Christ. And in that respect, you can say that when he weeps that night, it's the love of Christ uh, that constrains him to weep. His sense of the Lord's love for me, even though I have done that for him. So here, back in our own passage, at last with the hand on the latch and the fragrance on the latch, she opens the door. Of course, when she handles it, the mirror comes onto herself, uh, which is always what happens as we draw near to the Saviour. Um, we, 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 we imbibe that fragrance ourselves. It becomes part of us. But when she opens the door for the fellowship, it's not there. And we're told that, at verse 6, that she looked for him, couldn't find him. I called him, but he gave me no answer. To look for him and to call him for him symbolizes our attempts to find the Lord's presence. perhaps especially in the private means of grace. But then you'll notice that she goes to two other sources for help. She goes first to the watchmen who go about the city. And she says, they found me. They struck me. They wounded me. Those watchmen who were the keepers of the walls they took my way veil away from me. Now, we can't help but contrast here the way the watchmen deal with her in comparison with the way the watchmen deal with her in chapter 3 and in verse 2. Well, actually, just read from verse 1 to get the sense of it because this is the beginning of another song. Chapter 3 and verse 1. By night on my bed, I saw the one I love. I sought him, but I did not find him. I will rise now, I said, 
and go about the city, in the streets and in the squares, I will seek the one I love. I sought him, but I did not find him. Now notice the role the watchmen play here. The watchmen who go about the city found me, to whom I said, Have you seen the one I love? Scarcely had I passed by them when I found the one I love. The implication there is the watchman helped her. They listened to her question. They were sympathetic in the response. And they pointed her in the direction of where she could find her beloved. The watchmen represent the preachers of the gospel, the keepers of the walls, the guardians of the city of God, those who have the keys of the kingdom. They guided her in the right direction. But here, if you go forward again to our text in chapter 5 and verse 7, it's so different. The watchmen who went about the city found me, struck me, wounded me, and took my veil away from me. Now, it's very hard to understand that really in any other way, I think, other than having no real compassion with her and no understanding of her situation even to the extent of taking away her veil. And sometimes it happens that you go to people, or perhaps people that you would expect to be able to guide you, and they do nothing for you. Sometimes you, you would find conditions of declension, which we have today, that people who do come under concern of soul, they might go to a minister. In fact, I was speaking to someone who... Yeah, this fits very well. Not that long ago, they told me of how they began to feel anxious about their soul, and they went to see the minister, and the minister just couldn't understand what that person was talking about at all. The reason for that is that, sad to say, he was dead himself. He had no understanding of spiritual matters at all. He had done his theological degree, he had been ordained, and he would stand up and speak, but knew nothing of what it meant to be under conviction of sin, what it meant to find the Saviour, what it meant to lose a sense of the Saviour. None of these things. He could give no help whatsoever. In fact, the best that he could say was that the person should go and see a psychiatrist or somebody to help him with the kind of difficulties that he had. No understanding. And that's sometimes what you can find from a watchman. They strike you and they wound you, and they take your veil away from you. She then turns to her fellow believers, and she charges them in verse 8, If you find my beloved, you tell him that I am lovesick. This is a call to those who know the Lord to intercede for herself. And uh, very often the Lord moves us in that kind of way. He may send a, a believer to you for you to intercede for them. Many a time you have come to somebody and asked them to intercede for you. If you find him, you tell him that I am lovesick. That, of course, leads the daughters to ask this question. What is your beloved more than another beloved? O fairest among women, what is your beloved more than another beloved that you so charges? 
These are wise words because they will find who the Beloved is. They know fine that the Beloved is altogether beautiful and altogether lovely. But they want her to say it. They want her to make the confession. Sometimes a, a, another believer will test you. Just like um, Naomi tested Ruth and said, you go back to your own land, Ruth. Go back to your people. Go back to your gods. And of course she famously says, entreat me not to leave you. It was a test. And here, this isn't a test, but it's like it. It's just designed to bring out from her heart who she really was and what is it that is so attractive about her. The Lord Jesus Christ, once when he met a blind person, said, What is it that you want me to do for you? What is it that you want me to do for you? We would say, well, that's perfectly obvious. What, what do you think a blind man wants done for him? But the Lord wants to hear it. and wants to hear it from his mouth. And many a time the Lord leads us to a situation where we realise uh, who it is that we want. And perhaps when we realise it, we won't take it for granted again. We're terrible people, really. The, the sin within us makes us quickly weary with something that we should be abundantly glad and delighted with. She had once described her beloved before, but that didn't stop her reclining on her bed asleep. So the Lord doesn't just want her to find him, but to praise him, to realise again who he is in all his glory and his majesty. And that's why we have the wonderful expression of the glory of the Saviour from verse 10 through to verse 16. And we'll begin to look at that description, God willing, next time. May the Lord bless our meditation upon his own word. Let us pray. <coughs> O Lord, our beloved is indeed so much more than any other beloved. And uh, it is a wonder to us that he can speak of us as his sister and his love and his dove and his perfect one. We are so far from that, O Lord, in our own sight. And uh, it is fitting and right that you, the Father, should bring us to a place where we value your Son and should bring us through whatever way it pleases you and you see fit to that place where we honour and exalt him as we ought. When he is beloved in your eyes, then how fitting it is that he should be beloved in ours. And Lord forbid that we should take our Lord for granted, that we should think in any way less of the Saviour than we should. So help us to lift him up before one another, 
uh, to speak of him with love and with gratitude and to commend him to one another and indeed to others, even those who are not yet of the household of faith. Bless those who were unable to be present in this house tonight and uh, we pray that they may again uh, be partakers of good things for where the desire is then there the blessing will be also for the blessing is in the desire and do us good and strengthen us in your good time help us to pray uh, for spiritual growth and we pray for the conversion of sinners praying for new births in this town and in this island and we pray too that you would provide for ourselves in, in the right time a place uh, which will be our own which we can use for the glory of God and the extension of your kingdom guide us in these matters without that guidance we are left to the poverty of our own wisdom in Christ's name we pray Amen <coughs> Let's uh, sing now in Psalm 63 <coughs> Lord thee my God I'll early seek My soul doth thirst for thee my flesh longs in a dry parched land wherein no waters be, that I thy power may behold and brightness of thy face as I have seen thee heretofore within thy holy place. There's power there and there's beauty. And in verse 3 it goes further and says that the love of Christ is better than life itself since better is thy love than life my lips thee praise shall give I in thy name will lift my hands and bless thee while I live these three stanzas let's stand to sing Oh. 